0: Happy New Year, everyone! Happy 2021!
1: For you guys. We're not there yet.
0: Yeah, we're recording this just before the New Year, so um, tell us, what's it like? Has everything changed? Did the clock strike midnight, Cinderella's castle melted, and I don't actually, the pumpkins (laughs) turned back into people? I don't know. Wait,
1: that doesn't sound pleasant. Are you getting, like, (laughs) Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella confused?
0: just global warming.
1: Oh, because it was a, an ice castle. Elsa made it for her.
0: Yeah, it was It was her wedding gift to her. Yeah. Anyway,
1: happy new year, you guys. We're really jealous that y'all are in 2021 right now. We're just a couple of days away from it and so ready. What'd y'all do for the new year? Did you have fun?
0: Did you have fun Zoom drinking with your friends?
1: Did you have fun? Just, you know what? Splitting a bottle with yourself and that means drinking it all alone. That's okay. Honestly, I quit celebrating New Year's years ago. It's one of those holidays, and I'm pretty sure I said this last year. For those of y'all who have been listening um, to us for a while, I'm sure I'm repeating myself. But for me, it's one of those holidays that it's so easy to be so disappointed that I'm just not going to, like, why make it out to be this amazing, spectacular night when... I mean, more often than not, it's me either by myself or, like, with one or two other people. And we just watch the ball drop and then we're like, okay, we're done. I mean, I I did the whole Times Square thing. Like, I'm good. I don't need to repeat that.
0: I love New Year's. I always like to take stock of, like, the past year and do, like, my goal setting. But not, like, my... Whatever bucket list goals? No, whatever people call them for New Year's. (laughs) But I I think they
1: just call them goals.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, like things I want to like work towards, not things of like, I'm going to lose 50 pounds because it's like, okay, no, you're just setting yourself up for like stress and disappointment. Being like, you know what? I'm going to focus on my mental and physical health. I'm going to take time for myself. Like things like that.
1: The self-care and all of that. Very important.
0: Yeah, self-care
1: and self-growth. Well, we say all of that to say Happy New Year's to you guys. We're looking forward to being on the other side with you.
0: But alive. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes. Not that other side. Anyway, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany.
0: And I'm Tyler, and we're still alive.
1: We're still alive. I know Tyler in the last episode said there was a cliffhanger of, will we be? We are. We definitely are. Yeah, you said that, Tyler. I edited that today.
0: Okay. I was (laughs) like, I guess we did. I guess I said that.
1: (laughs) I heard it recently. And by today, I mean in the last week. My days have blurred together. I don't even know what is up and down anymore.
0: It's still 2020 for us. Uh, but yeah, no last episode, um those those peppermint uh, white Russians, they got me.
1: Oh my god, they did get you. You were like, This is drink number seven. I'm just kidding, you guys, he didn't. I had
0: have seven three. <laughs>
1: <laughs> seven. And I'm just sitting here drinking my wine like, well, it's a wine podcast and Tyler seems <laughs> to have forgotten this
0: listen I like to I like to keep y'all on your toes what am I gonna drink next episode a big old glass of milk milk yep
1: <laughs> it's what you were gonna say I don't know why because please don't do that we don't have to talk about the details let's instead talk about this episode Tyler remind everyone about Patreon
0: so for those of y'all that might not have checked it out Patreon is our kind of homepage for our Patreon family. It's where you get access to different blood and wine exclusive Patreon-exclusive things, like our murder minis. We have different phone recipe stuff. We have um, different perks, like directing your own episode. We have one of our tiers. You get to not only direct your own episode and get all the things, like shout-outs in the podcast and stuff, but you also get free merch with it. So... Check out our Patreon. It's and- patreon.com slash pod. Head over there and look at uh, joining the Patreon family.
1: And while you're at it, be sure that you start the new year out with subscribing to us. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, follow us on Spotify. We are also on Pandora. All of them. You can find us. Be sure to subscribe and you'll get notifications of all of our new episodes on Tuesdays.
0: Well, let's jump into our topic. So, it is a new year full of new things. And, more. like, literally, I have heard this phrase a hundred thousand times this year, and I'm so over it. But I'm going to use it again. Now, more than ever, I'm so over it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so... I'm like... Literally, you turn on the TV every like, it's a car commercial, and they're like, now more than ever, four wheels on the road will get you and your family safe. I'm like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Now more than ever, the two for four meal at McDonald's is back. Now more than ever, Discovery by Prep, don't get HIV. And I'm like, we get it. (laughs) 2020 (laughs) is a lot, but now more than ever, we need to come together and be hopeful. And think about those that have survived all odds, because that's going to carry us through twenty twenty one. So now more than ever, we're focusing on survivors.
1: I feel like you like slipped into like a senior graduation speech or something there, and you know, are you valedictorian of the podcast? Is that what you're trying to tell me?
0: Yeah, you're salutatorian.
1: All right, whatever, I'm fine with it. But yeah, we're going to be talking about survivors. <laughs> Listen, I never got to
0: give a graduation speech, so this podcast is my moment. This po- and she is the moment.
1: This podcast is our graduation speech every week.
0: Yeah, that's true.
1: <laughs> we get up God, on those. what a
0: weird... <laughs> we get up and we're like... So as she was stabbed 35 times, she thought to herself, this is not where I want to be. And I'm going to grow and learn. And then everyone in the audience is like, do we go?
1: I mean, I'm pretty sure she was thinking this is not where I want to be. Probably not the other part, though.
0: Well, I mean, yeah, that is fair. But yes, our topic is survivors.
1: And before we get into the topic, we're going to get into our wine. So let me tell you what I'm going to be drinking today. Okay, I'm realizing my faux pas as I see Tyler's wine that he'll tell you guys about here in a minute. But it's the new year, and I'm drinking a red wine instead of, like, something fun that has to do with celebrating that new year, but that's okay.
0: I, I'm drinking bubbly. You could say it.
1: I didn't want to be a spoiler, but yes, so Tyler got bubbles. He didn't, like, communicate this to me. I guess he thought I could think of it on my big girl own self, and I did not. But instead, wow. <laughs> I will be having the 2018 Silk and Spice Red Blend from Portugal. And I bet it's going to be everything nice. That's sugar and spice, but that's okay. Sugar and spice and everything nice?
0: Yeah, it's you're having wine, not eggnog.
1: <laughs> Ew, I don't like eggnog.
0: I want to. I want to like it.
1: Yeah, but no. So this wine was about $11. I got this one from a Spex, which is a big like liquor and wine store here in Texas. This one's really cool. It's got, like, this pretty map on the front. And so, like, you know, anything with a map on it, I'm like, oh, absolutely, that's the one I'm doing. So that's what drew me to this bottle. It's a bold red blend with medium tannins. It's more on the dry spectrum and uh, medium acidity. There are notes of vanilla, oak, and chocolate, as well as blueberry, plum, and dark fruits. And then it's rounded out with hints of licorice, cinnamon, and pepper. So this is a nice, beautiful, smooth red blend. It's you know th- those are the flavor and ar- aromatic notes of a lot of red blends. So none of that surprises me. That's exactly what I expect when I pick up a red blend. Yeah. So with that, I'm gonna get into this. Let's try it. Or I guess I will try it. Tyler will not try it.
0: I was like, I I can't
1: reach. I can't reach <laughs> you through the phone. So I already pulled off the foil because I just didn't want to, I didn't want to mess with it. I do not want to mess with the foil. Fair. Let's go. Oh, it's a regular cork. Oh,
0: that was a little baby pop.
1: Baby bottle pop. <laughs> All of my pops are so little now. And it's because like this wine opener pulls it out so well that like I don't have to pull.
0: You don't have to, like, grip it and use all your strength and be scared you're going to tear the bottle itself in half, like me.
1: I don't think you are afraid you're going to tear the bottle in half. I'm afraid you're going to tear the bottle in half.
0: I mean, I'm not until it happens. And then the day that I pull a glass bottle in half, (laughs) I'm going to be impressed with my power. But also... I don't probably cut my leg off on accident.
1: <laughs> probably going to be really sad because you just spilled wine all over the floor.
0: But if that happens uh, when we're recording, y'all best believe we will keep as much in as we can.
1: Oh my gosh. The sound of the ambulance as it comes to pick up Tyler because he did. <gasps> That's cut my his case. Leg. My
0: case will be mine.
1: <laughs> anyway, I'm going to pour my wine. Okay. I definitely get those hints of those dark berry fruits, uh, those purple and black and, you know, not non-red fruits. I'm not smelling like there's no cherry going on here. That's not what ha- what's happening in this wine. But you get that like kind of hint of oakiness that you can smell. So I know when I try this, I, I think I'm going to be tasting that vanilla and those like, I'm hoping I get some of that like cinnamon and pepper. I hope there's a big punch of pepper. I don't really Mm. think so because it is more like medium and smooth and pepper to me is generally a little bit harsher and it goes with harsher tannins, but we'll see when we taste it. Yeah. So Tyler, tell me about your bubbles. So today I'm
0: drinking the Orfila Champagne, Champagne from Mendoza, Argentina, and I could not find anything about this wine not on their website not on vivino like they have some things for orfila wines but this one is specifically an extra brute and i found some stuff on their like regular brute but i know the flavors and profiles can be vastly different between extra brute and brute because brute is like it's lo- describing the level of sweetness, and Brute is pretty dry, with extra Brute being very, very dry. So I'm like, I don't know, because some of the people on the Brute were talking about like, ooh, it's a little tropical, I get some pineapple, little sweetness, and I'm like, I have no idea if I'm going to get any of that in this. Uh, but yeah, it's an Argentinian sparkling wine. I don't think I've ever had bubbly from Argentina b- before.
1: I know I haven't.
0: So I'm going to get this open. Also, Brittany, don't judge me, but this is the glass I'm drinking it out of. I need to do my dishes.
1: You guys, it's a juice glass. It's, yeah. but um, It's just a cup. Anyway, what I was going to say is you're just going to have to tell us everything about this wine using your own taste buds. It's like a test. It's like a test of do you know how to taste champagnes? Because for me, I'm generally like either it's sweet or it's not and it's bubbly. Oh, mm, bubbles. That one is a very bubbly bubble.
0: Yeah. I'll give you some insight why I picked this glass because it was the closest to like those like actual champagne, not the flutes, the, but the, the champagne coops? glasses. Yeah, that looked like a bird bath.
1: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean,
0: And I was like, yeah, this is kind of like that, just deep. It's for heavy birds.
1: All right, well, here's a real cheers. Oh, sorry, I was getting so excited. Tell me about, what do you smell?
0: I can smell the fact that bubbles are hitting my nose when I stick my face in it. I don't know, it's fresh. It's not, it it doesn't have much of an aroma, but also it's a bubbly. And bubbly doesn't usually have, like, notes and stuff you can pick up with your nose, right?
1: It's not anything like the red wines we're used to.
0: Yeah. No, I'm getting nothing. So, you know what? Cheers to 2021, to 2020 being over. That shit show of a year is gone, y'all.
1: Cheers.
0: It's like club soda. You just, ta- well, you can just taste that like carbon dioxide.
1: It's either um, a very weak bubble, which is totally a possibility that it could just be a weak flavor.
0: I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Like, most bubbly wines are not super flavorful. Even the really, like, more expensive and really good ones that you don't pair with, like, in orange juice and a mimosa, something like Vouv, still isn't super, super flavorful. But this one was, like, $12, so I'm like, maybe it's closer to like the J. Roget, where it's not that flavorful, and just put some orange juice in it. I don't have juice.
1: It just has like a whisper of flavors. Whispers of fruits.
0: Whispers of fruits. Oh my god. My Fire Island Diaries. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this one, it actually, I'm not... It's very, very fruit forward. Again, not surprised with a red blend, but I'm just being punched in the face with all of those dark fruits, those blueberries. I've got those hints of vanilla and a tad bit of chocolate because it is, I mean, it's a drier wine, but it's got those sweet notes to it. I'm not picking up on any of the pepper, maybe a little bit of baking spices. I don't know if I can identify that as cinnamon in particular, but It's a pretty classic red blend. For me, it is a little bit fruitier than I thought it would be. I thought I was going to get a little bit more of these um, different textures and flavors throughout it. But it's different than than like your apothic or something like that. Those red blends mm-hmm. that we're all really familiar with. So if you're wanting a new red blend, you're wanting to test some grapes from somewhere that maybe you're you're not drinking as much of. Um, I know a lot of red blends that I have are American red blends. This one's from Portugal. So it's a fun twist on on red blends.
0: I I like red blends that are not just like the American typical red.
1: Me too. It's just something a little bit different. And technically, like I can't ever say... Oh my gosh! I don't really like red blends because what do you think Bordeaux is? That is a red blend. I mean, it's not called a red blend; it's called a Bordeaux because it's specific. But like, you're blending different but red it's, grapes. It's a yeah, yeah. It's, a,
0: it's a red blend. So, okay. Well, we have our wines. We have our topic, Brittany. Why don't you tell me about the survivor case that you are going into this episode?
1: I'll be talking about the survival of Kate Moir. The sources I used, an article on Insider by Chelsea Greenwood, an article on Yahoo News by Natasha Christian, the David and Catherine Burney Wikipedia page, and Kate Moir's GoFundMe page. A couple of trigger warnings that I do want to let you guys know up front, this case does involve rape, kidnapping, um, and sexual assault. This is the story of Kate Moir, and how she escaped Australia's worst serial killer couple, David and Catherine Burney.
0: Have we talked about them before?
1: We have not. So I'm going to start out my case, not with Kate, but I want to give you guys a background on David and Catherine Burney and what kind of serial killing shit they were doing in Australia. David and Catherine, they were a couple from Perth, Western Australia, who murdered four women ranging in age from 15 to 31 at their home in 1986. And they attempted to murder a fifth person. That'd be Kate. These crimes were referred to in the press as the Morehouse Murders, which was named after their address. They lived at 3 Morehouse Street. And so taking back in time a little bit, back and up to the 1960s, David's parents decided to move the family to a a Perth suburb. And this is when David met Catherine. They met through mutual friends. And at the time they were both about 12 years old, a couple of years later, they ended up officially becoming a couple. So like when they were like 14 and this lasted um, into their early twenties, by the time David was an adolescent, he had already been convicted of several crimes and he was in and out of prison for misdemeanors and felonies When he became an adult, he became a sex and pornography addict and a paraphiliac. And that's someone who basically just gets off on, like, really weird things that aren't supposed to get you off. Catherine also spent a lot of time in jail. Both of them, though, did get married and they had children. And then in 1985, Catherine left her husband and her... I saw two sources. One said she had six children. One said she had seven So she left her husband and her multiple children, and she went to live with David. The two of them were never legally married, but Catherine did change her surname, and she started going by Bernie. In late 1986, David was employed at a local car wrecker shop, and for more than a year, David and Catherine were practicing how to make their sexual fantasies of rape and murder come true. And this was all going on while they were just weeks away from their first crime.
0: Oh my God.
1: Over a period of five weeks, the Burnies abducted five women, like I said, between 15 and 31. Their first victim was 22-year-old Mary Nielsen. She was studying psychology at the University of Western Australia, and she also had a part-time job at a deli. She met David at this spare parts yard that he worked at. She needed some new tires for her car. David offered to sell them to her for pretty cheap and ended up giving her his phone number. On October 6th, 1986, Mary went to the Bernie's house. When she was there, she was immediately kidnapped, gagged, chained to the bed, and raped by David while Catherine watched.
0: What the fuck is wrong with these people?
1: A lot. She was then taken to Glen Eagles National Park near Albany Heights in Bedforddale. And this is where she was raped again and strangled with a nylon cord. David then stabbed her, thinking it would speed up the decomposition, um, as he read in a book somewhere. Which, I don't know what kind of book he read that from that has nothing to do with decomp. Like, maybe well animals finding her? That's disgusting, he, I know, but...
0: Yeah, well, I'm thinking, like, getting your... Like, exposure to the inside of your body? But, I don't know. I feel like it would just leave knife marks on the bones.
1: I don't know. But they buried her in a shallow grave. Two weeks after the murder of Mary Nielsen, they abducted 15-year-old Susanna Candy as she was hitchhiking along Sterling Highway in Claremont, Australia. The Bernies had been cruising for hours looking for a victim, And this is when they saw Candy. Once she got into their car, she was immediately held at knife point while her hands were tied together. She was taken back to their house, gagged, chained to the bed, and raped by David. The Bernies also forced her to send letters to her family to assure them that she was okay. Her family was still very concerned. These letters did nothing to change that.
0: Yeah, they're... Their concern is not going to be assuaded by getting some letters.
1: Exactly. After both Catherine and David had assaulted her, Catherine tried to strangle her with a nylon cord, but Susanna became hysterical, and Catherine like wasn't able wasn't able to actually go through with it. And so the couple forced sleeping pills down her throat to get her to calm down. And so once Susanna was asleep. David put the cord around her neck, and he told Catherine to strangle her to prove her undying love for him by murdering this girl.
0: Oh, my God.
1: Catherine went with the demand, and she killed Candy while David watched. They ended up burying her near the grave of Mary Nielsen in the state forest. So they've got this same place. They've got this pattern. They're taking the bodies then to the same location and disposing of them. Shit. And this is all happening really rapidly.
0: Yeah, because you said it's just been two weeks.
1: Yeah, it's been two weeks. This whole, their whole like murder spree is only five weeks.
0: Whoa. So it's
1: like literally almost one a week. Yeah. On November 1st, they saw 31-year-old Nolene Patterson standing beside her car on the Canning Highway. She had run out of gas while she was on her way home from work. They offered her a ride, but the moment she got in the car... There was a knife held up to her throat and she was tied up and told not to move. She was taken back to Morehouse street where David repeatedly raped her gagged, chained to the bed. Again, it's the same sadistic, horrible experience. And the Bernies had originally decided they were going to murder Nolene on that same night, but David decided to keep her as like a prisoner in the house for three days. And there were actually some signs that he started to have this emotional attachment to her. And so Catherine got really jealous. She was like, this is not okay. She gave David an ultimatum. She was like, you're going to kill Patterson or I'm going to kill myself. Jesus. I know. He immediately forced an overdose of sleeping pills down Patterson's throat and strangled her while she slept. They then took her body to the forest and buried it just a little bit away from the other two victims. So on November 5th, so this is literally like four days after Patterson, but if they, you know, they held Patterson captive for like three days and then murdered her. So this is essentially like that next day. Yeah. The Bernays abducted 21-year-old Denise Brown as she was waiting for the bus on Sterling Highway. So.
0: Oh my God.
1: They are... Just offering people rides, people who are hitchhiking, people who are stranded, and even people who are just waiting for the bus, but then, you know, see this kind couple come up to them. And this is one of those things that just makes me so sick when couples um, play off of each other like this, and they try to seem like they're safe and like totally innocent, but they're in on it together. Couples who kill are so, so fucked up.
0: Oh, yeah, because it's easy or natural to be wary or uneasy of, like, just some random guy. But I feel like a woman stranger feels a lot more safe and comfortable and can assuade a lot of those fears. And so this couple, it's like, okay, you know, I'm not going with this creepy guy. It's, you know, I have this, like, level of trust, this couple.
1: Well, immediately, when Denise got in the car... She was held at knife point, taken to the house, chained to the bed, and raped. The following afternoon, she was taken to the Wanneroo Pine Plantation. And in a really secluded area of the forest, David raped her um, in the car while the couple was waiting for it to get dark. So it was just killing time. Oh, my God. After they dragged Denise from the car, David raped her again. And then stabbed her in the neck. They thought that she was dead and they dug a shallow grave, laid her body in it, but all of a sudden, Denise sat up in the grave. Oh. David then grabbed an axe, struck her twice in the head, and buried her body once again in the grave.
0: Oh, fuck. That is brutal. An axe.
1: Everything that they're doing is so extreme and brutal and vicious. Everything. Yeah. So that brings us to November 9th, when 17-year-old Kate Moir was abducted at Knife Point after accepting a ride with David and Catherine. So again, she fell victim to their same song and dance. Yeah. The couple brought her back to their home, where she was tortured, raped, and handcuffed. She was forced to do things such as dance for them, and she slept in the couple's bed while being handcuffed to David. On the morning of Monday, November 10th, 1986, so that morning after, Kate had spent that night completely sleepless. She was chained up in this house of horrors, as it became known. David and Catherine ordered her that next morning to call her parents to tell them that she was okay. She was just over at a friend's house and Catherine held a knife up to her throat as David listened to the call like on another phone in the house to make sure she wasn't making up like what she was saying or how her parents were responding yeah so she gets on the phone and she tells her parents that she had just gotten too drunk the night before and decided to stay with a friend Kate was really hoping that this would you know trip her parents up they wouldn't really believe her because she was not known to be a drinker this behavior would have been very, very odd for her to do. Yeah. So they were, you know, she was hoping she couldn't say any of this, but she's hoping her parents are going to like call the friend to see if that's actually the case. But instead, they just went back to sleep. So it must have been really early in the morning.
0: Oh, God. I mean, but see, that's one of the reasons why I feel like you see people, or like it's, I feel like it's one of those things that you like teach your kids to have a safe word or secret code like in college um me and two of my roommates we lived together and it was kind of it was something we kind of had like as a joke but it also become became something that there was the underlying if any of us actually used this it's not a joke and it was if we were kidnapped and like called them or texted them and it was I think it was like either can you go to the store to get mayonnaise or like I'm going to the store to get mayonnaise. And then it was Miracle Whip or craft or something like that. And that was the like, are you being taken somewhere or are you like in one place? But people do that.
1: That's really smart. I mean, it, unless you ever need mayonnaise and then you just need to go get it yourself and don't tell anyone.
0: I mean, that's true. But like how, you know, you're supposed to teach your little kids, like, if they're going to get picked up by someone who's not one of them, you know, what's the family safe word if they don't know it, you fuck right out of there.
1: I love how yours was two steps. And like, it, it was like multiple code words, but also a series of questions or like a conversation that totally makes sense. Hey, I'm going to go get mayonnaise. Are you getting craft or Miracle Whip? Oh, I'm getting Miracle Whip.
0: Oh, they're taking you out of state. Like, that's, yeah.
1: There's a lot of information that can be gathered from that. That's so smart. Um, I hope a lot of people steal that idea.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, I'm just saying, talk to your best friend or your family. Like, some little something code phrase like that. Because, I mean, like how Kate was saying she was hoping her parents would pick up on, she's just saying, like, oh, I was drunk. Something that's not going to make her kidnappers think twice. But hoping that her parents know her enough that that's weird enough, so...
1: Yeah. After she got off the phone, Kate just noted how David behaved as though this was any other day. Not like he had someone that he'd kidnapped and was holding in his house. David ate breakfast and he left for work. And this eventually just left Kate with Catherine. And so... Kate realized her odds were about like 50-50 now, because she was alone with this woman. So she's like, okay, I need to, I need to become friends with her. Like, I need to get her to trust me. We've got to build some type of rapport. At this same time, so this next morning, detectives Paul Ferguson and Vince Katic set up a task force to investigate Denise Brown's disappearance. So it had only been, like, four days since Denise disappeared. None of these, like, none of these bodies have been discovered. Like, again, this has all happened very quickly. So there is an investigation open for all of these missing girls.
0: Well, and Denise, she was just picked up from the bus stop, right? Yeah, she was the one at the bus stop. So, I mean, in her case, maybe there were more witnesses or something?
1: Well, that morning, Detective Kadich drove to where Denise was last seen to interview eyewitnesses. So, yes, there were some people who saw because public place bus stop. Police were trying to piece together this puzzle. And at this exact same time that the police are doing their investigation, Kate is realizing what's going on with her and where she is because there was a report of Denise's disappearance in the morning newspaper. Kate later said that she was sitting in the lounge room with Catherine, and she saw Monday's paper there in front of them, and there was a picture of Denise Brown's head. So, like, just, you know, a photo of her. Catherine started just, like, laughing when she looked at that page in the newspaper, and Kate asked her what was funny, and Catherine just says, you think a big girl like that could look after herself? But in this photo... You cannot tell the size of Denise. You you can it's her it's a headshot. You see her face. Yeah. So Kate said that she knew like in that moment. She was like, "Oh my god, they killed Denise." So it's clicking. She's like, "Okay, I've been kidnapped. I am one of these girls that has been missing, and they absolutely are killing these girls."
0: Yeah. Like obviously my first thought is you know, her getting a knife and, like, killing Catherine to escape or something. But in reality, I don't know. I think a lot of times when we talk about survivor cases or cases of kidnapped victims, like, fighting for their lives, like, that's amazing and so powerful when they do. But I think it's too easy to forget, like, even if you're in that situation having to make the decision of am I ready to end a life is not something that I think we can expect or think of anyone.
1: Well, and that's even assuming that the opportunity arises. I'm pretty sure Catherine's not leaving a knife on the kitchen table.
0: Well, no, but I'm just saying like, you know, even if the opportunity had arisen, it was there. I think the conversation of I think a conversation that is often not had is that how huge that is for someone to have to grapple with do I take a life to save my own?
1: It very much goes down to that fight or flight. And the definition of how you choose to fight can be very different. It can be like a physical battle, or in Kate's instance, it was a okay. I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to become Catherine's friend. I need her to trust me. So like that was, Kate is realizing, okay, shit, I am in a lot of trouble here. How am I going to handle this situation? David is out of the house. It's just me and Catherine. And so she does that. She like tries to get Catherine's trust. And, You know, she became, like, friendly enough with Catherine that Catherine let her go outside with Catherine, like, not alone. Yeah. And Catherine's letting down her guard a little bit. So they came back into the house later, and there was a knock on the door. Catherine, like, got up and was like, stay in here. If you leave, if you do anything, I'll kill you. I've got to go get the door. So she went to the door, and it was actually her drug dealer. So she's doing that. But Catherine had not chained Kate to the bed. And this was all a part of her plan. Like she was cooperating with Catherine and it worked because Catherine did not chain her to the bed. So Catherine's at the door buying her drugs. And Kate looks up and she's like looking at this window. She's like, can I get out of this window? Now's the moment where I can risk making a little bit of noise. So she tries to get it open, ends up breaking the lock and climbing out the window. She ran down the streets. She was banging on various neighbors' doors. Nobody was answering.
0: Oh, my God. That is one of the hardest parts of so many of these survivor cases is when they're free, but there's just one more step. They, they need help to get real free, and
1: people aren't answering their doors. Exactly. She even jumped a gate. She was attacked by a dog. She managed to keep going. And she found this vacuum cleaner shop. She ran inside, later described herself as completely hysterical. I mean, she's barefoot. She's got like her leggings and like a bra, I think. Like she's not even fully clothed. And she informs the shop owner that she had been kidnapped and raped. And the shop owner calls the police. When the police arrived, Kate said that she had been abducted at knife point by a couple who had taken her back to their house She described a lot of the torture that had gone on. And initially the police were a little skeptical of her story. I don't know why. With everything that's going on.
0: I swear. Because this is the 80s, right? Yeah. This is like 87. It's 86. It's
1: 86. And this this is one of those insanely frustrating. You can't even really put words to how infuriating this is. When someone is a victim and they're trying to describe what happened to them and they're not believed. Um, especially no. when it comes to rape. Like, that is that is not fucking okay. And I think we need to just switch our mindset to always, like, believe. Assume belief. Don't assume deceit.
0: Yeah. Because the thing is, in my mind, the most likely reason they would have is, like, oh, it's this 17-year-old girl. And it's, like, exa- yeah. Exactly. Yeah. W- women are victim, Like, okay. You also literally have all these women disappearing in the past, like, three weeks. Oh, my God.
1: Thankfully, 22-year-old Constable Laura Hancock believed Kate from the very beginning.
0: Fuck yes, she did.
1: She was a brand new constable. I believe this is one of her, like, first interviews as an officer. And a lot of what led to her, like, just sticking by Kate from the get-go was all these details that kate was providing she even had the phone number and the address of the people who had kidnapped her oh the bernies you know gave themselves aliases but kate had actually read david's name on a medicine bottle in the cabinet so she's like no his name's not whatever alias was his name's david she also stated that while she was there they had watched the film rocky on vhs She also described a drawing that she had concealed in the house as proof of her presence. So she found some way to make Uh, markings somewhere.
0: She is so smart and forward-thinking. Like I know! She full-on... This wasn't just a, like, oh, I'm going to get Catherine to like me and I can escape. She full-on had a plan. Like, she... Worked out like the logistics. The if I'm not believed, how can I put evidence here to show I'm not lying that I was here? If they're using aliases, what are their real names? Like paying attention. Oh, I oh my god,
1: she is absorbing all of those details. And what is so impressive, she was there for I think it was about 24 hours ish, maybe a little under, maybe more like 17 or 18 hours, but like. She was able to just be like, nope, here's what I'm going to do. Here's how I'm going to try to get out of this situation. Because if I don't, I'm going to die. And it's not saying that these other victims didn't try the same things. I'm sure they were also creating their own lists and ideas. And also, when you're in that type of situation, there's no wrong way to react. You know? Yeah. Like, you are a victim and you're being put through absolute torture. Your reactions, you know, wrong is not a label we can give your reactions.
0: Exactly. And honestly, the fact that Kate was able to do all this while going through such horrible, mind-numbing trauma as she was, I I know for a fact I would not be able to.
1: No, it's like she totally shut down her emotions and was just like thinking like, okay, here's a problem. I got to get from A to B. How am I going to do that? Yeah. The police then went to the Bernie's house. They found her drawing in the home as well as the VHS copy of Rocky in the VCR. So details like that, that it's like, no, okay, she was there. Like, this this happened. David and Catherine were arrested, and during their interviews, they gave conflicting information. Surprise. This always happens.
0: Well, because they've been doing this for three minutes. They have not had enough time to get their story straight. No. or And it does not sound like either of them, especially David, are the type of people who would ever assume they would get caught. So why make plans of what to do when you do? Because I'm big dick God over here. I'm not going to get caught.
1: It's totally what they seem like. Catherine denied ever meeting Kate. David insisted that Kate had come to their house voluntarily to engage in consensual sex. Detective Sergeant um, Vince Koch, he convinced David to confess and reveal where they had buried the bodies so they could be dug up before dark. So literally, like, the detectives oh. were totally on to them. They were like, you know, as soon as they were able to verify the evidence that Kate, you know, had said, like, no, the drawing, the movie, like, this is it. They're like, okay, yeah, no, this guy, th- the other girls are victims of these same people, these other women. And they were trying to get that information that same day so they could go go recover the bodies. David revealed where the four other victims were buried.
0: Oh, so he full-on cops to everything.
1: Yeah. They were convicted and sentenced to four terms of life imprisonment. David was found dead in his cell in 2005. And to this day, Catherine is still in prison. So today, Kate is an activist fighting multiple things in Australia. She's campaigning to revoke mandatory parole hearings for murderers in Western Australia and to overhaul parole legislation in all of Australia. She's also campaigning to improve the justice system through the instigating of harsher penalties for violent crimes, including rape, pedophilia, grievous bodily harm, domestic violence, and assault. Plus, she's also pushing for the introduction of uniformity of sentencing throughout the states of Australia. So Mm. in February 1987 is when David and Catherine were sentenced to four life terms for their murder of Susanna Candy, Mary Nielsen, Nolene Patterson, and Denise Brown, plus 10 years for deprivation of liberty and 20 years for raping Kate twice. However, those life sentences effectively meant that their sentences of 30 years for Kate's abduction, they were pretty much forgotten because, you know, they got these life sentences, the court ordered that these life sentences be served concurrently, so this meant that they only had to serve 20 years before they'd be considered for parole and release. Really? Yeah.
0: I'm I'm sorry. I, I can understand like a life sentence in Australia, part of it being it's after 20 years you're eligible for parole or whatever. But that's just so fucked up that they didn't make the sentences they got because of what they did to Kate happen consecutively, like after this. So- Maybe yep. they're up for parole in fifty years because they have to do the twenty of a life term and then thirty for her
1: exactly. And that's what Kate is fighting against because she has spent her like entire life since this incident, considering the fact that they could maybe be released and on parole by the time she was only thirty seven. And so, oh my God, you know, she lived every single day. Worried about them re-entering society, and it—it it was just something that always haunted her. Like I did mention, David died in prison. He hung himself in 2005, but Catherine has been up for parole four times since 2007. Her latest parole hearing was in February 2016. All of them have been denied, but. Kate's GoFundMe page is still open. She's still raising money for her campaign, fighting against the Australian justice system to to help other victims like herself feel like they've actually received justice. Because she said she doesn't feel like she's received justice. Her portion of the sentencing was essentially absorbed into the others. And the fact that the, the four life sentences for the other victims are being served concurrently, what's the difference in one and four? Well, see exactly.
0: That's kind of my problem when they when sentences are uh, like done concurrently. Is this these four life sentences are the same as one life sentence, and the sentencing they got for what they did for Kate basically does not play a part of this because it gets, like you said, absorbed into life sentence. So, yeah. Justice was brought, you could say, for one of these murder victims. Right. But not for the others and not for Kate.
1: Like I said, if you're interested, her GoFundMe page is still open. It's gofundme.com forward slash F forward slash Kate Moir. And that's K A T E M O I R. And that is the survival of Kate Moir.
0: Wow. She is incredible.
1: She is. And I feel like, you know, this is one of those levels of survivor cases that we don't really talk about very often. Like we do, but not through the lens of the survivor, because there are survivors of Ted Bundy. You know, Carol DeRanche got away from him in Colorado, I believe. Tracy Edwards escaped Jeffrey Dahmer. And there are so many others like this that help bring all of these victims to justice and bring these killers to the police. And so I just wanted to, I don't know, tell you guys an absolutely horrifying case, but really focus on Kate, the the one person that helped catch David and Catherine.
0: Yeah. It's a really, I don't know if interesting is the right word, but it's a lens that we've not really used in a lot of these serial killers. We do because what what is the survival story take on Ted Bundy as a killer? And how does that change the narrative and change what it all looks like? Because, you know, Ted Bundy as a killer all stays the same, but the lens we see it through is so important to how we understand a lot of these cases.
1: Yes. I feel like we get a lot of our information from survivors. And we talk about this when we do survivor episodes, how much more information you have. Well, a lot of information we have on serial killers are also from those survivors who survived them.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's why when we have serial killer cases where we don't have survivors, there's so much speculation about what happened. We have the evidence we can find on the victims' bodies as to like, you know, what weapon may have been used or how they may have been killed, but we don't have the Experience and everything that went on. And kind of like you alluded to earlier, you know, we know that Kate had this planning, you know, how to save myself mindset, but we don't know if Denise also had this same mindset because we don't have her story from her own words.
1: Right. Well, Tyler, tell me about your case of survival.
0: So the case I'm doing today is one that. I'm honestly really shocked we haven't done before. I mean, I I had to have multiple conversations with Brittany about, is this one we haven't done before? Like, are we sure? Are we both sure? Because it's a very well-known case for good reason. You may have heard it from My Favorite Murder. This is the survival of Mary Vincent.
1: This is such a crazy one. And we have talked about, I feel like, We have to constantly look to see if we've done it because we've talked about it so much.
0: We have. And this is one that I found quite a bit more information that I didn't know because I'd seen the episode of I survived that she's in. It's episode one of season three and I'd seen it, but I found a couple sources that gave a lot more context and information that I hadn't seen or heard before that made it I don't know, more real, but it's harder to get realer than I Survived, which is a person literally telling you their experience.
1: Well, why don't you dive on in and tell us about Mary's survival?
0: So the sources I used for this, uh, Season 3, Episode 1 of I Survived, an article on Mamma Mia by Belina Jepsen, and then the Wikipedia page for The Killer... So, my case takes place in September of 1978, just outside of Modesto, California. Mary, she's 15 years old, and she recently run away from home. Oh, yeah. She's 15.
1: I thought Mary was, like, 25.
0: No, she is a sophomore in high school, is what she would be at 15. She's a baby. She sh- She's a baby. She should be worried about, like, her geometry homework. And not... Surviving. All of this. Yeah. Yeah. So she had grown up in Las Vegas. She was the middle child of seven children in a military family. So they kind of moved around quite a bit when they were growing up. But she was mostly raised in Vegas. When she was a teen, though, she was, you know, the quote-unquote, like, bad kid. Like, she would cut classes. She wore makeup, which is always one of those things... As a cisgendered man, makeup isn't rebellious, and it always surprises me that it's like, oh, that's a sign of a rebel teen. She wore eyeshadow. And I'm like, yeah, she got that Anastasia palette going on. Like, what? But I guess wearing makeup is at the same level of cutting class. I cut class all the time.
1: I know. I didn't. I was like this goody two-shoes. You saw my raccoon eyes, all that black eyeliner.
0: Oh, God, when you fifteen-year-old Britney?
1: yeah, fifteen-year-old Britney thought she was so punk and so cool. But I was. She still heard f-
0: one All Time Low song, so you know she's a badass.
1: <laughs> um, she still never really cut class. so She like was such a goody-two-shoes that it just it is what it is, and um, she didn't know what blending was.
0: Fifteen-year-old Tyler would well, I I cut class all through high school. For multiple different reasons. Sometimes when I was a bad kid, I would cut class and like me and my friend would go drive around. We might go to the mall at 12 on a Wednesday. And then sometimes I'd cut class and go to the library (laughs) to hang out with my friend who his class was like being a library aide. And that's what I would do because I didn't want to go to weightlifting and take my underwear off in front of men.
1: That is totally High fair. school.
0: But then I uh, could back squat better than any of those other jock bitches in the class. So, hey, work. Anyways, um, Mary, she is a rebellious, quote unquote, like the biggest air quotes. She's a rebellious teenager. She cuts classes. She wears makeup. And her parents were really strict. I mean, it's a military household. So there's does not surprise me. Her parents are very strict and she rebelled against them and then one day when she was 15 her sister warned her that her dad was on her way on his way home he had a migraine and he was angry at mary and so mary was like oh fuck so she she fled she ran away she was like i'm not dealing with dad's wrath especially if he's got a migraine no absolutely not Mary ran away from Vegas. She moved to Sausalito, California, and stayed with a boyfriend there.
1: Oh, so she, like, literally straight up left.
0: Oh, she ran away, 100%. And she would also stay the night with an uncle she had that lived kind of in the area. But then, in late September, I don't know how long she'd been gone, I don't think it was more than just a couple weeks, she had started to regret her decision to run away. She was homesick, she missed her family, so she decided to start hitchhiking back to her family in Nevada.
1: This is the 70s, when that was the mode of transportation.
0: Oh, absolutely. And a little bit of conflicting sources, one of them said she was going to her grandfather's place in Los Angeles. One of them was saying, I mean, I survived where she was speaking, was saying back to her family in Nevada, so I'm like, oh, maybe she was like going to... Say hey to Grandpa before going back. Or maybe Grandpa was going to drive her from L.A. to Vegas. I don't know. But she was missing her family. She wanted to go back home. I mean, hitchhiking, yeah, it was so common. Common to the point that when Mary was hitchhiking, she was, like, on the side of the highway. And there's a lot of people out and about around her also hitchhiking that all had, like, signs of, like, I'm going north. I'm going south. I'm going east. It's California, so not many people are going west, but...
1: Well, it's like we've talked about. Even students would use that as a mode of transportation to get to class.
0: Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, it's just... It's literally another form of like public transportation.
1: It's like a taxi, except you're not paying them.
0: Exactly. So Mary's holding her sign. She's out on the side of the highway, um, just outside of Bakersfield, California. And her sign is saying, like, hey, I'm heading south. And this guy in a blue van pulls up to Mary. She's also with two other people that are also like going south and have their signs. So like Mary didn't know these two people that were also going south that were, she was kind of unofficially grouped in a party of three because they were all going the same place, all heading south. But this van pulls up and it is completely empty except for the driver, but he tells them that he only has room for one person. And he's like, so, you, little girl, like, I can take you south. And the two people that are with Mary, and I, I say with, basically, they're next to Mary. They're full-on strangers. They're just all hitchhiking south. And I don't think they'd hitchhiked together to get there. Right. So they don't know Mary, but they're like, girl, don't don't get in that van. If he is only willing to take one person, and he's specifically singling out, like, one person young female in his big ass empty van. This is not safe. But Mary, she wasn't thinking about that. She All she wanted to do, she just wanted to get home. She missed her family. She missed her siblings, her parents. She, she was just homesick. She wanted to go home and not to be alone anymore. And this guy in this van, he just looked like a grandfather. He was like, you know, portly. He was older. He had a beard. I mean, he's just, he's a grandpa. And so she doesn't, she doesn't think twice about it.
1: He doesn't seem threatening.
0: He doesn't seem threatening and also protecting her life. And so like, that's not anything on her mind. She's like, I want to go home. This guy's offering me a ride. Yeah.
1: Like, of course I'm going to get in.
0: So she does. She gets in the van and she's so exhausted that she starts to doze off. She wakes up from her nap, and she starts to kind of look out the window and stuff. And she sees one of the road signs they're passing on the highway, and she was like, "Wait, hold on, this seems wrong. This is different." And she's still like waking up, but the the sign was talking about like eastbound. They're going east, and she's like, "Uh, no, I'm heading south." Like. I told him south. He said, yeah, I'm going south. Why are we going east? And so she turns to him and is like, look, you're going the wrong way. And you know you're going the wrong way. Like, what the fuck is happening? What? And he's like, oh, my bad. You know, honest mistake. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to stop and uh, use the restroom and then we'll continue to Los Angeles. Because she was going south to LA but now east into Arizona.
1: Well, that's the thing. It's like how do you get off the road to LA?
0: I mean, it's a different highway. Right. That's the that's the thing is that he's saying that and sh- that literally doesn't make any sense. No. Like LA is south and west and you're going east. You're not like, well, the closest rest stops in Phoenix, so here we go. Like, no. Yeah,
1: it's not like this like, oh, sorry. My mistake. Mm- Took a wrong turn. Clearly he's doing this on purpose as, you know, is going to be evident oh, by obviously. everything else you're about to say.
0: So they're driving for a little bit and the van turns off of the freeway and down a little like side road highway that it seemed to kind of lead towards a canyon. They're ba- they're like in the desert. They're in Southern California. And Mary, like in her mind, she's like, Oh fuck. This is very isolated. This road is deserted. I am this dude's prisoner. But then she starts thinking. She's like, okay, I'm young. He's old. I'm healthy. He's not. I can outrun him. Like, I can get away from this. But she looks down and her shoes are untied. And she's like, okay, well, if I'm going to run, I'm going to tie my shoes. So this guy, he pulls the car over on the side of the road. I think he's still under the pretense of like, oh, I just need to piss. So he gets out. She opens her door. And, like, hops out of the car and bends down so she can tie her shoes. And then all of a sudden, this man hits her in the head with a sledgehammer.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Yeah. So she's like, oh, I need to get out of this. I just need to tie my shoes first and then I'll run. And he is just comes behind her with a sledgehammer in the head. And she blacks out. When she wakes up, he'd tied her up in the back of the van and he began raping her. He raped her six times, and then he fell asleep next to her. But she's still tied up, and she can't get away. So she's having to lay there in the back of his van while he's sleeping next to her. She's tied up.
1: Oh, my God.
0: Later on, this man, he wakes up. He climbs back into the driver's seat, and he drives them further down this road towards this canyon. Where he again rapes her repeatedly throughout the night and then like force fed her liquor.
1: Oh my god.
0: The hours are going by slowly. Mary is terrified. She's exhausted. She's in so much pain. And she's pleading with this guy over and over. She's like, just set me free. Please just set me free. I'm not going to tell anyone. And then the sun starts to rise. It's now morning. Morning. The man, he pulls her out of the van, and he also has a toolbox with him. And he says to her, you want to be set free? I'll set you free. And he pulls a hatchet out of the toolbox. No. He then grabs her left arm, and he swings with the hatchet. And Mary starts to fall. He swings the hatchet again, and she grabs onto him, but she's still falling. And she's like, why am I still falling? I grabbed him. Well, she looks down and she realizes her, she's not grabbing him. Her left arm has been cut off just below her elbow. He then grabs her right arm and starts swinging the hatchet again and cutting off her right arm. And Mary starts kicking and screaming and hoping that somebody is going to hear her. And because she's fighting back, it takes him longer and it takes him more swings to cut off her right arm. So now... Mary is laying there on the ground. Both of her arms have been cut off, uh, like below the elbow and she's bleeding and she watches him walk away. And then she noticed he's like flicking his arm and she's like, what is he doing? Like, is he like flicking blood off the hatchet? Like that doesn't make like, what is he doing? And then she realizes, Oh, when he was cutting off my left arm, I did grab him. Her hand is still gripping onto him and he's trying to fling her arm off of him.
1: That is so crazy how that works because it's like yes your your arm is severed but the message already got there so the hand like knew to grab.
0: Yeah, and it and never got the message to unclench. I'm like is this what people mean when they say death grip? Like, is this where it comes from? After shaking her arm off of him, the guy comes back to her and he thinks she's dead. Because, I mean, she's blood loss. And she's just laying there. She's not moving, but she's awake. She's aware of everything that's happening. He drags her body across the road and then he threw her off of a 30 foot cliff down into a concrete culvert like a concrete like drain. Oh
1: my God.
0: The fall broke four of her ribs and the blood loss from, you know, having her arms cut off, it sent her body into shock, but she's still alive and she's still conscious.
1: Her still being conscious is what blows my freaking mind.
0: I know I, it's one of those things that I'm like on a very basic medical level. I understand how blood loss works but when it comes to things like this, I really don't. Because some people pass out from uh, like uh, from giving blood. I mean, I guess that's not passing out from blood loss. It's more passing out from like seeing blood and stuff. Right. But the fact that she has had both her arms cut off. And your arms have some pretty big arteries in them. Not as big as the ones in your legs, the rest of your body. I think like when it comes to arteries, your arms are like... Some of the smallest, which is why, like, if you get shot in the arm, it's a lot better than getting shot in the leg. Yeah. But even still, her arms are just cut off. And her heart is still pumping blood to those arms.
1: And now she's been thrown off a cliff.
0: And now she's been thrown off a 30-foot cliff onto concrete.
1: That is, like, three high dives. I mean. Aren't high dives normally, like, 10 feet?
0: I have no idea. I'm just trying to visualize
1: falling 30 feet or being thrown 30 feet. I mean, it's
0: being thrown from a third story building, from the roof of a third story, three story building. It's okay. It would be like uh, jumping off, uh, jumping onto concrete from my balcony while being thrown. But high dives just took, that is some like discovery channel shit. That is the same when they're like, it's raining over four million Olympic sized swimming pools on the city every hour. And I'm, I, okay, that's crazy, I guess.
1: Okay, but also that's a lot of water. That's the only point you got to get. But anyway, continue.
0: Yes. After he throws her off the cliff or attack her, he drives away. And Mary's laying there. And all she wants to do is fall asleep. All she wants to do is die. And then she hears this voice, this voice in her head that's saying, I can't go to sleep. He is going to do this to somebody else, and I cannot let it happen. And so that voice, that voice in the back of her mind reinvigorates her. She gathers her energy, and she stuck what is left of her arms into the dirt to pack her wounds from the bleeding because... She was bleeding enough that she was like, okay, if I shove my, my arms into this dirt, it's going to become mud, and it's going to cake on, and it's going to hold in the blood loss.
1: How do you think of that? It's like those last moments of survival. You know, it's like you'll pretty much do anything. And I, I do think your mind comes up with stuff that a conscious, uninjured mind would probably never imagine as an option.
0: Oh, absolutely. But also she's fifteen and she is like, okay, I need to, I need to cake my gaping non arms in mud to to staunch the flow. And then she starts crawling back up the cliff. With no hands. She has her I mean her arms have both been cut off just below the elbow. So she has she, basically, these open wound elbows she's using to crawl back up this cliff. And by the time she reaches the road, it's night again. And remember, when she the attack started, that was when the sun was coming up.
1: Oh my god. Also, no one's going to see her. It's dark. No one. And this road was already pretty abandoned anyway, didn't you say?
0: Oh yeah, it's the middle of nowhere. It is pitch black Except for the moon and stars. There's nothing around her. But. Even though she cannot see anything really. In the distance over a hill. She can hear the faint sound of traffic. And she says to herself like okay. There is a highway somewhere that direction. And so she starts walking. And she is. Like remember. She has been tied up. Raped had her clothes torn off, her arms cut off. So she is walking naked, drenched head to toe in blood. And she has her arms raised up so that her muscles and blood don't fall out of her arms.
1: Oh my God. I didn't even consider that.
0: In the middle of the night. And after walking for more than three miles, she makes it to the highway as the sun is starting to come back up. So, I mean, it's it's been... Tw- 24 hours since she was first attacked, like, arms cut off Attack. Yeah. The first car that she saw was this, like, red convertible that had two men inside it. And the car slows down. She's on the side of the highway. She's, like, screaming for help. The car slows down. And when she's, like, screaming at them for help, it speeds off again. And when she was saying this, she was like, honestly, you know, I don't really hold any grudges to them. Because think about what I looked like. Like, I am a full on horror movie victim. My arms are cut off. I'm drenched in blood. I'm naked. Would you pull over for me? I like to think I would.
1: That's what I was going to say. I'd like to think I would, but how do you know unless you're in that position? And none of us want to be in that position. N- I not n- saying I never want. Not saying, like, I don't want to help anyone, but just saying, like, no one wants to come into contact with someone who has been that brutally attacked and is in that state because like we like to imagine that doesn't happen although you and i know full and well and all of our listeners that this all of shit our, this happens. episode
0: 138 y'all know this, y'all happens. all know and it but that's the thing is i, I hope i never have to learn if if I, my real reaction would be to pull over and help or not because i i think i would i really think i would But I don't know. And also, I will say, this is 1978. We don't know if those men saw her and were like, oh, my God, we need to help. Let's floor it to the nearest phone. Because they don't have cell phones. They don't even have car phones. Maybe in their mind, their best idea of helping her is to make it to the next gas station or something and being able to call the police. Mm -hmm. Call an ambulance. I don't know. I mean. Or maybe they were terrified by this full on horror movie victim on the side of the road at like six in the morning.
1: I'm thinking it's more that one. Because if you're truly going to help someone, leaving them where they are, if you have the option to not do that, is is not the best way to help them. Like. I
0: know. But I see what you're but- saying.
1: And, and honestly, that was a moment of shock for them. You know. When I think about, like, maybe what I would do in this situation, again, truly not knowing until having, you know, being in the situation, but I feel like if I were to see someone in this dire circumstance, I would be more willing to stop than I would if I saw someone on the side of the road, uninjured, just, like, screaming.
0: Oh, I mean, yeah. Because- I think that's the thing, is, I mean, clearly, she she ain't got no arms. Like- She's drenched in blood. This, if your mind is racing and it's like, oh, is this like a trap? Is she just like leading me to the killer? Maybe if someone was like uninjured, like that is where your mind could go. But clearly she's actually dying before your eyes.
1: Exactly. And I would like to think that's where maybe the difference is. Because, you know, we can't sit here and think we're all saints and are not going to have a moment of hesitation. This is scary. You know, it's not happening to us. But being faced with something like that is not something anyone thinks about when they wake up. That like, oh, today I'm going to be driving down the road and rescue someone from dying.
0: No, and I don't think anyone knows how their brain is going to handle trauma like this until it's truly faced with it
1: yeah so okay the first car sped away what happened next
0: next the second car came and in the second car it was a couple it was a young couple they were on their honeymoon actually and they'd gotten lost so they were driving around like we try to figure out where the fuck they were how to get back to where they're going and they see her and they immediately pull over they helped Mary sit up into their truck. They told her, like, don't move. Like, you're safe. You're here. We got you. And then they floored it to the nearest phone to call the paramedics. Mary was saying, like, this is an old truck. I could hear those tires on the high like on the highway just like going way faster than they had any right to.
1: I will say I think it would be a lot easier to stop and help someone if you were not alone.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Because it being a young couple.
0: Well, the first car was two men in the convertible.
1: Right. No. But you have a plan. But I'm just saying like going back to like what would I do in this situation? If someone else was in the car with me, there is so much more likelihood that I would stop and help because I'm not alone.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: And I know we've also addressed this, but that comes from the fact that, like, I am a woman and, like, stopping for anyone. Like, there is a level of risk that I have in my head more so than a man does. Not that that man's completely safe, but you get get what I'm saying.
0: A hundred percent.
1: But, oh my god, I'm so glad it just took two cars.
0: Me too. So, the honeymooning couple, they get to a phone... They call paramedics, and then a rescue helicopter takes Mary to the hospital where they're able to save her life. She had lost over half of her blood volume.
1: Oh my god, you can still, like, be a... Oh my god, you can be conscious and walking?
0: Mary could. And the rest of the blood in her body, it had, like, succumbed to toxicity. Because of the dirt? Because, I think because of probably the dirt but also probably just like the lack of blood the amount of like salts and poisons just going straight into her blood i mean she's full on septic but it it's like her body was like yes i get this i'm full on septic however i'm not going to die so body go fuck yourself
1: we're working through this
0: i mean it, that's kind of what it sounded like it was it, it's like Her body ignored itself.
1: It's like the level of shock she was in was so much, which, fair, get it, Mm
0: -hmm. that
1: her body cannot register anything that's going on with it. It is like...
0: I don't know how it could register without... Like, I don't know how you could let your body feel all of that without full-on shutting down.
1: It's like she blocked it out with her mind and her body just kept going.
0: Yeah, Ten days after this, police found and arrested the man who attacked Mary, and his name was Lawrence Singleton.
1: I am so glad they found him.
0: Same. Then, in March of 1979, a San Diego jury convicted Lawrence Singleton of kidnapping, mayhem, attempted murder, forcible rape, sodomy, and forced oral copulation. And at the trial, Mary was there. She now had prosthetic arms, but she was there at the trial. And when Singleton was done testifying, Mary was leaving the courthouse and she had to walk past him, like, just a few inches away from him. And when she walked past him, he said to her, If it's the last thing I do, I will finish the job.
1: Well, it won't be, motherfucker.
0: Well? Singleton was given a 14-year jail sentence.
1: Are you kidding me?
0: That was the maximum that was allowed in California at the time. And he served eight years after being paroled on good behavior.
1: Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Oh my God, I am so pissed right now. I didn't remember this part of the case. And this is... So many levels of absolutely fucked up that this is not okay. This is not okay.
0: Yeah, he's paroled and Mary's 23. Singleton was paroled in Contra Costa County, California. But there were no towns that would accept him being there. So he wound up having to live in a trailer On the grounds of San Quentin Maximum Security Prison until his parole ended a year later. Good. Because authorities, they had attempted to settle him in all of these different towns in the Bay Area, but angry crowds and protesters were screaming, picketing, they were not letting it happen. In the town of Rodeo, which is about 25 miles northeast of San Francisco, a crowd of about 500 local protesters were up in arms, and they forced the officers to move him under armed guard from his hotel room, because they were going to kill him if they got their hands on him. Because he'd done this and served eight years, and nobody was having it.
1: Well, exactly. That was what I was thinking, because normally I would say, oh my gosh, the city shouldn't do that they shouldn't fight against it he served his time but i'm sorry he didn't even serve his full weak ass sentence so yeah no i am totally supportive of these cities being like not my city get the fuck out
0: people serve more time for having like some weed in their pocket
1: i know That is the thing that makes me so frustrated with some of the sentencings that we discuss because I know there are people for nonviolent crimes who are spending way more time in prison, sometimes life sentences for something that is nowhere near as violent as this motherfucker. And so I just, I cannot get behind those weak ass sentences. As much as I am about prison being about rehabilitation, it's also about getting people like that off the streets.
0: I mean, yeah, because the thing is, you have any person of color who maybe had a drug offense or a nonviolent offense getting 20 to life, and this man is out after eight years for this?
1: I will never understand things like that.
0: No. It took the governor of California, uh, because all basically these protests and everything happened in any town they tried to move him to he would need to be placed in like a bulletproof vest and like under armed guard taken from each town because these protesters were going to kill him and the governor of california ordered that he would be placed in a trailer on the grounds of san quentin for his one-year parole because that was the only place that he wasn't gonna get murdered
1: And I guess, like, after that parole's over, he can leave the state.
0: Yeah. The outrage after all of this, it wound up changing the sentencing laws in California. And those changes would have seen Singleton face 31 years in prison minimum. But he couldn't be retaken under these new sentencing laws. Yeah.
1: You can't take him back in, but I am really glad to hear that it did change some things.
0: It did, but these changes were too late for his second victim.
1: No. Oh my god, he did it again.
0: He mo- after he was off parole, he moved back to Florida where he grew up. He'd been in and out of jail for things like petty theft, um just like little minor things. But then one day, he stabbed a 31-year-old sex worker and mother of three, Roxanne Hayes, to death. And this is in 1997. So this is just nine years or so after his parole ended. A neighbor heard the situation happening next door, like heard some assault or screaming, called the police. And so police arrived at the house and they found Roxanne's body and Singleton standing over her with his shirt just covered in blood. And in Florida, he was convicted and sentenced to death. Singleton wound up dying of cancer on December 28th of 2001 in a Florida prison hospital. And today, Mary... She's married, she has two children, and she says she is living and loving life every single day. And that is my case. That is the survival of Mary Vincent.
1: Such a powerful survivor story because it is so unimaginable. Unimaginable what happened to her and unimaginable that she survived it.
0: Oh, a hundred percent. The, like you look at it in so many different ways from the like biological shit of like how her body survived this to the psychological of how mentally she was able to survive this and be be happy once again to enjoy life once again because it would be so much easier for her to struggle and not, not to say she's not struggling today, but for her to, like, let this overcome her and fall to substance abuse as a coping mechanism or basically wind up letting what happened to her kill her. Yeah. I feel like that would be the easy way or, like, the, the easiest thing to do, but she still fought that and is still fighting that today and is thriving
1: yeah that's what i was thinking she totally had that option of letting this completely take her life even if it didn't take her like survival life but just taking her life completely and she wasn't about that she was like nope um we were looking at some photos of her on google earlier and it's wonderful to see like when you google her name she's so happy in so many of the photos.
0: Oh my god, there's this one photo where she has two prosthetic arms now. Um but there's this one photo where she's just like in the neighborhood like walking her dogs and just she has this grin on her face. She's just a she's a mom. She's
1: thriving. Well, I'm thinking we totally brought it to open up 2021. And if you agree with that, if you also think that we totally brought it in this episode, if you're glad to have us back, you hated that week off, I mean, we're glad to be back too. But please. Yes, we are. (laughs) Please go rate and review us. Leave us those five stars on Apple Podcasts. Leave us reviews on your podcast listening platform of choice. Let us know what you're thinking. We love reading them.
0: Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So check us out.
1: Well, welcome, you guys, to 2021. Let's make this year so much better than the last. It's not going to take much. We got this.
0: It can only go up from here. It can
1: only go up, right? And it will.
0: It will. And with that, this is Blood & Wine signing off.
1: XOXO. Bye, you guys.
0: Bye.